0: The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they managed to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive podcast where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Today we're going to be discussing David Beckham and OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. So David Beckham, John, this is our first, mm-hmm. um, our first, I would say, soccer athlete. I know we're supposed to say football, football correct? Yep. Sorry, yep. okay. All right. <laughs> don't flag me for that. Um, when I think football, I think NFL. It just is what it is. Yep. It's a product of where we grew up, right? So, David Beckham, first soccer athlete. I'm going to let you roll with this one. Cause I'm not a huge like I, I like soccer. I'm getting into it more, and, and was certainly before the pandemic. But I'm not like a super fan. Don't know that much about it. So, yes, yeah. what's, what's your take on David Beckham?
1: Well, he's sort of like one of the Mount Rushmore players, especially in the United States, because I think he helped draw a lot of attention to the sport. So mm-hmm. um, I'm a huge Manchester United fan, um, and I was back when I was th- when I was like 10 years old. So I grew wow, up when goes it goes back, goes yes, back yeah. some time. Uh, so I grew up in like, I guess you could call it like the golden days. So they were winning Premier League championships all the time. They were winning FA Cups. They mm-hmm. were, you know, they were doing always really well. And David Beckham was a part of that. The team and he was what was called um the Fergie's fledglings um which was so Alex or Alex Ferguson legendary coach for Manchester manager from Manchester United um right around when David Beckham was coming on to the team he had kind of a decision to make of we've got this we've got a bunch of these fledglings it was him I think Paul Scholes Ryan Giggs uh the Neville's Gary and Paul um who are defenders, kind of coming on and had to make the decision of, like, do we go out and buy these big-name guys? I think Roberto Baggio, who's big-time player, mm-hmm. was potentially coming on, or do I just put my trust in these young guys to come on? And he did, and it ended up working out really well. Um And David was Beckham was one of those guys. And so I started watching, like, during that time. It's like, late 90s? Yeah, okay. like mid to late 90s. Yeah. Um Beckham came on the scene, I think it was like 95, 96 when he was like cemented. He was okay, a part okay. of the Man U like development program yep, before yep. then, but he really started playing. And then his big, his big sort of moment was when he scored that, I think it was Wimbledon, scored that half field kick mm-hmm. uh, or goal. And that sort of was like his big like moment. And then, you know, everything kind of came from after that. Um, but it was, so that was what like cemented me as a, as a soccer fan, and I got to grow up watching some of the best teams. They're they're in a tough spot right now, uh, currently, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Um, so, but David Beckham was just like one of those people that sort of he drew a lot of attention, and then of course when he came over to LA Galaxy, um, then again like a, another massive resurgence for for U.S. population to be like oh. Maybe I could watch some soccer mm-hmm. um, and everybody knows who David Beckham is. He's one of those names out yeah, there that just yeah. like everybody knows who he is yeah. and bend it like Beckham yeah. and that yeah. whole term, like it all kind of comes from him. So really excited to get into him. I really, before doing, before kind of talking about this subject, didn't know that this was something that was going on for him. So I'm excited to kind of talk more about it um, and learn a little bit more. So.
0: Yeah, so he is um, a quick bio. He's an English prof- uh, former professional footballer, uh, current president, and co owner of Inter Miami CF and co owner of Salford City. What does CF stand for? Do we know? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Not either. They always have weird acronyms and initials for, like, football FC's clubs. FC so. is usually football club. Right, right. I don't know what CF is. Okay. It. Um, well, it's Wikipedia, so it's not yep. always on. Okay, maybe they reverse <laughs> those, too. Yeah. Um, so a couple of interesting facts about David played First played professionally in 1992 at the age of 17 for Manchester United. I think, like you said, that was maybe his initial. Mm-hmm. Wasn't big then, left, no. and then maybe come back? Yeah. Come back? Okay. Yep. Went on um, on loan and then yep. came back. Okay. He's married to Posh Spice, uh, also known as Victoria Beckham, uh, which and she nicknamed him Golden Balls, which has to be uh, this due to his soccer prowess. Uh, we're yeah. just gonna leave it at that. Yep. <laughs> um, he's got four kids, and Elton John and Elizabeth Hurley are godfather and godmother to some of their kids, so it's um, pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> he is half Jewish, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. We always try to feature um, some kind of charitable organization that the player kind of supports. He's done a lot of work with a lot of different charities throughout mm-hmm. the years. Um very, very active in, in that uh, you know sector of his life in terms of trying to help and give back. UNICEF is the main one that he's helped quite a bit and for a long time, so we put a link to that in the show notes as well and we're at so david Beckham as a as an athlete, I mean we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. I know for him, um you know I think he initially mentioned. Struggling with this around 2006. So That's the earliest I kind of saw it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he he talks about how it started when he was a kid, uh, but that's the first like he came out and actually talked about it. And he's it's we don't like to speculate on on this podcast, obviously uh, for obvious reasons. We don't want to talk about things, that We don't we can't diagnose people from a podcast studio mm-hmm. or from reading things on the internet. Um, so we try to stick with people who have really talked openly about their mental health. This one's kind of in the middle because I think it's it's he he's never officially said he's been officially diagnosed. So we, but at the same time, he has said, I've got this disorder, which I think is different. I think for people, and right. we're going to get into this, for people who way too loosely throw around the term OCD, like I'm so OCD with this or I'm so OCD with that, mm-hmm. they say the acronym and they use it very flippantly. Whereas you know, someone says if someone says, I've got this disorder, I think that's a little bit different. So I feel like it was enough for us to feel pretty comfortable confident in saying that he struggles with this. Yeah. Good opportunity um, and an excuse to, to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I think in terms of the general population, from some of the data I saw, it was like about 2.3% of the general population is affected by OCD. I've seen as low as 1%, so it's probably somewhere in the middle, on mm-hmm. 1% to 2.3%. However, uh, this one study we found says that 5, 5.2% of athletes actually struggle with this which makes kind of sense. I mean, I think to be, especially a professional athlete, I mean, you have to be diligent. You have to be focused. You may have to be obsessive about detail and things mm-hmm. like that. So I, I can see how that might lend itself to yep. struggling with that a little bit more. Yep. Um, there is a fine line between OCD and kind of perfectionism. So uh, I can see how that would uh, impact a lot of athletes. I know when we did the Ben Gordon episode, I know he's someone who has talked about uh, being diagnosed with bipolar. A lot of the stuff that he struggled with struck me. I mean, I've done a lot of work with OCD. struck me as as uh, more than bipolar. Like there was maybe an obsessive or a compulsive component there. Mm-hmm. He never talked about that, so we didn't really get into it. Um, but so it does affect athletes apparently, according to some studies, more than the general population. And there's a lot of um, – I kind of found a good amount of famous people who struggle with OCD that I never knew about. There's Harrison Ford. Yeah. And this is what I've read online, so who knows <laughs> if this is true right. or not. But Harrison Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. Uh, Justin Timberlake, Howard Stern, Frank Sinatra, and Leonardo DiCaprio, who ironically played uh, mm-hmm. Howard Hughes in the movie The Aviator. Aviator. Howard Hughes was someone who also struggled with like intense OCD. Yep. I think that... As an example, not to say like everyone who struggles with OCD is at the level of what Howard Hughes was in that movie. But I think that's like a if I would encourage people to look at one example to really start to understand the difference between how people throw out the term OCD Mm -hmm. versus what OCD can be. (laughs) What it looks like. That's what I mean. It it is not just like, oh, I like to have some order in my life or like I wash my hands twice instead of once. I mean, it it is debilitating and it Mm -hmm. leads to, you know, people being removed from their life or relationships crumbling or, you know, we'll get into that. But it's it's. It's just not as casual as a lot of people make it out to be. And I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode was to really educate people to say, like, all right, if you use, you know, be careful throwing around that term. I mean, like, it's uh, similar to how we've discussed ADHD and even bipolar. Mm -hmm. You know, that that term is a real thing, and it's not often what people try to make it out to be. Right, or depression. Like, I'm so depressed, right? Yes, yeah. There's a difference between sadness and clinical depression. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Another great example, yeah. So. Um, from what I have saw, you know, in terms of like his symptoms, so to speak, that he's discussed. I mean, he says he needs things to be in a straight line and uh, symmetrical. Even mentioning like before I can relax, like he said, when he's in, he's in hotel rooms, he has to put like paperwork in a drawer before he's able to relax. So that's that that always kind of like is a red flag to me when it's yeah. I have to do X before my anxiety is reduced enough to be able to relax. Right. Um. So that's one thing he said. Things need to be in pairs or even even numbers, so much so that if they're not, he will. Either throw something out or put it in a separate location. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned Coke cans, Pepsi, Pepsi. Yep, mm-hmm. sorry, Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, he's a, is he a Pepsi drinker? <laughs> I, okay. I guess so. Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> can't hold that again. I, I like Coke personally. Yeah. What about you? Agreed. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um Everything has to match in the house, and that he even I think it was he, him or his wife mentioned having three fridges. Victoria, um, yeah, yeah, specific to food items. I think it was like drinks in one, salads in another, regular food in another, and mm-hmm. everything's kind of ordered. Yep. And I think to me, one takeaway I just want to get into real quick with that is that, you know, when it comes to, I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder and hoarding, because a lot of times they're kind of um, thought of as part of the same thing. Um, But a lot of times people who struggle with either or both of those, how much money they have can really dictate w- when they're diagnosed, or um, how much that diagnosis actually impacts their life, right? Think about someone like David Beckham. It's nice to be able to have three fringes. right? That's what I was going to imagine. Yeah. If you're someone who doesn't,
1: right? Who couldn't have the afford to do that, yeah,
0: yeah. And hoarding. There's, um, I believe, uh, Andy Warhol was a painter who was kind of well known to be uh, to have hoarding tendencies. I don't want to say he was ever diagnosed with hoarding it was a long time ago, and he had so much money. That he could just keep collecting things, and he would buy new residences to put them in. So mm-hmm. it's like, technically, is that ever really harming his life? Probably not. So he might not actually get diagnosed with hoarding mm-hmm. because he had so much money that he could keep buying things <laughs> and filling out space, yeah. and it would never negatively impact his life because he had the financial means to do it. So this, these are two conditions, you know, hoarding and OCD, where how much money you have really does actually make an impact in like either when you're diagnosed or how debilitating your life can become. Right. So, so he mentions. Um, that it started as a kid, um, which is very common. I think w- what we tend to see is that it, it it can start anywhere from like seven to eleven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of things in that eight, that eight, nine, ten range that that can be phases for for young people, and they most of the time grow out of it, right? OCD mm-hmm. is one. OCD tendencies is one of them. Um, separation anxiety, yeah. uh, fear of the dark. Like mm-hmm. we we see that a ton with like eight, nine, ten year olds. Yeah, and they typically grow out of it. And we tell parents like. Hey, if we're working together, we can get, we can expedite the process of them growing out of it throughout work. Right. Um, and yet, if you don't want to commit to to therapy, there's a good chance they'll probably grow out of a lot of this stuff yeah. too. Right. OCD is probably a little bit less. So you really, it really is important to intervene to yeah. make sure that it doesn't get worse. Right. Um, but a lot of this stuff, these things tend to be phases around this age. So he says, you know, he starts as a kid. Most, most grow out of it. If they if they can get help, it can be stopped oftentimes. I'm guessing for him, based on that time frame and, and being in the UK, I, I doubt there was a whole lot of awareness around OCD. Yeah, right? or support. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so let's see. His wife pointed out to him that it may be an issue and even said she was quoted as saying it's baffling how he manages the compulsions with OCD along with football and work, which really, again, w- when you're thinking about, like, does this person actually have OCD versus are they just saying it? That kind of comment, right, because it makes it clear that there's a lot of time spent, and we're going to get into the diagnosis. But one of the the hallmarks of being able to diagnose someone with OCD is how much t- how disruptive it is in their life, in their life through the form of time. Like how much time do they actually spend feeding, you know, feeding the obsessions or feeding the compulsive behaviors. Um, so much so that when that time is taken up, they're really not able to be doing some of the other things in their in their life. It sounds like for her, she's she's kind of baffled by how he manages to like do all can this. do it all, yeah, to like commit this time to the OCD and also still be, um, you know, in the past a, a professional football player, and then also I think he has a lot of business commitments and things he does that I'm sure take up a lot of time. So she even mentioned he spends hours straightening straightening the furniture. And even buys exactly 20 packets of noodles at the store. So, again, those even numbers, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it has to be an exact number of things. That can be with things you're buying, it can be with how many times you have to touch something. I mean, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, I found it interesting because he said his Real Madrid teammates didn't know, but his Manchester United teammates <laughs> did and used to keep things in a disorderly <laughs> fashion to, match to them to unhook me. That's what he said. Yeah. Um, which I think I read a little bit more about that. It sounds like they were just, they viewed it as a joke. Mm hmm. Which is not great, right? No. Um, I'm not sure that's going to help. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, we'll get into this. Like when friends, family, parents are are trying to help a family member struggling with OCD, part of what they have to do is actually do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably a little bit more supportive, less of a joke, as <laughs> um, a joke, right? You know, and obviously not in any kind of like a making fun or bullying or whatever kind of way. It doesn't sound like they were doing that to him necessarily, but uh, parents have to do this because a lot of times parents are doing the opposite. They're actually unknowingly accommodating too much. Right. And feeding into the compulsive cycle, which which we'll get into. So I found it interesting that some of his teammates kind of played into this mm-hmm. for better for worse. Yep. Um, did you see um, that he also has a bit of an addiction to getting tattoos?
1: He did, yeah. And I think his wife said like, "Please, no more tattoos." I think was she came down at the that piece too because he's. I think he um, the quote I think I remember reading was like he enjoyed the pain. I think it was yeah. of like getting that tattoo, which was definitely something that was really interesting mm-hmm. um, and curious to. You know, to 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 say to point it out like that which yeah. was definitely sort of an interesting an interesting statement.
0: Yeah, because we've talked about like you know when it comes to like self harm, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people use pain to replace emotion, like physical pain to replace emotional pain. I don't know that that's what this is necessarily. It might be. It also could be like I think people with OCD tend to have some quirks when it comes to uh, the need for sensory stimulation, mm-hmm. and they tend to have tics as well, either as a kid or or eventually they they may grow out of them, they may not. But anyone who's younger who has any kind of like, um, you know, uh, whether it's like facial tics or, you know, they mm-hmm. do things with their hands, a lot of times it's for sim- the need for sensory stimulation, that can actually be a warning sign. because mm-hmm. a lot of people with tics when they're very young, you know, in, in the like, think like four, five to like eight range, are shown to be more at risk to develop OCD symptoms. Yeah. Um, not a guarantee, but more at risk. So it, it might be something like that, that... Um, you know the the tattoo kind of process for him is a sensory stimulator. Yeah, um, sounds like he enjoys that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. maybe that's it. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, he's so he has said that he'd like to get rid of it, but has tried to and can't stop. And that like it just sucks to hear that because you know mm-hmm. like um, I mean one it's okay it's good that he's accepted himself. It sounds like he doesn't judge himself for it, which is good. On the other hand, you know we've done work with this. We know how debilitating it can be and yeah. how frustrating it can be and draining and. Um, it can be hard for family and stuff like that. So it sounds like his kids having his kids around has actually been a helpful mm-hmm. uh, thing for him, you know, helpful distraction, and he throws himself yeah. into that, which is great. Yep. Um, but I wish I could get a chance to work with him because I feel like I, can, yeah. I might be able to help with this kind of thing. So yep. um, OCD is an issue. Where do you want to start, or John? I, I don't want to cut to that too quick. Do you have any takeaways about David Beckham? No, I mean the, the, you covered most of the ones I had. The sort
1: of the same the same pieces the so like the tattoo thing felt like kind of a, an interesting an interesting one and it makes sense in terms of like those types of pieces potentially leading to to that too mm-hmm. the the two different cultures of manu and real madrid especially at that time real madrid was like the team everybody wanted to be a, mm-hmm. a part of that was like if you made it there you were like the you know that you were amongst the best like this to wear was after to wear, man,
0: he was on Manu. after he yeah, was on okay, Manu, okay.
1: um like to wear the white shirt was like a sign of like that was you've made it mm-hmm. you're, you're the best of the best so it makes sense that that culture was sort of like that like buttoned up don't talk about that type of stuff mm-hmm. very very professional and Manu was those guys that team was just very special <laughs> I feel very very uh Grateful and spoiled that I grew up with Manu when their glory days, and then yep, being yep. a Boston fan the last twenty years. So you've had it pretty rough. Huh? I've had it. Yeah, yeah, I've had it. Had it rough. <laughs> um So that, that that was kind of an interesting dynamic. It sounds like he's really supported. The other one that you you've already brought up that I think is a really really great point is that he has the financial means to sort of like adapt to these different things like you said he has three refrigerators who has three refrigerators right who can afford to be like okay we have a food a salad and uh, whatever else Um, but if he if he for people who don't that would be debilitating where where do I put my food right how do I how do I manage this and could be really tough it does and it does it it, that one stood out to me too of like he's tried and hasn't been able to overcome Um, is hard to hear it sounds like he's in a he's in a good space he talks about his he talks about his kids all the time. And I'm sure that's probably... I mean, he's a dad, so come mm-hmm. comes to the territory mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but also, I'm sure, like you said, I'm sure it's been a really great distraction from his own pieces that are going yeah. on to just like,
0: let's just dive in and, and do some stuff with my kids. So, um, I wonder if uh, Life After Football... Has been easier for him or harder when when it comes, cause we, you know, I could yeah. see it being easier because like he has to maybe pay attention to a little bit less detail and has to his, he's out of his routine hmm. routines, you know, help in some ways, but OCD that it can be a slippery slope to becoming right. compulsive. I could see it being easier for him. I could also see it being hard. I mean, we have talked mm-hmm. about how when athletes retire and their main source of whether you know one one source of joy or consistency is gone, mm-hmm. it can lead to them ha- really struggling. I don't know. I want. I would. I would guess for this one, it might be easier for him um, compared to other other mental health issues. I think it would become harder after yeah uh, life after the sport. This one, I think, actually might be easier, but I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I, I think it, it's hard to tell. And and again, and one of the things that stood out is like another example. We've talked about this with athletes in the past of like how their disorder could have potentially contributed to their success mm-hmm. right like his hyper focus and vigilance on keeping things organized probably helped him to be yeah. the success that he was he's talked about his training regiments and his free kicks especially uh, i think he still holds the record for Premier League free kicks i think he had like 18 or something like wow. something astronomical yeah. um and so he he's like he talks about that consistency in his training and how that really worked for him so That sure, it's probably enabling the the potential OCD Mm and feeding into it, but it probably also helped to contribute him. So then you take that away as an outlet, and yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know is it easier, harder. But you know, with family and things like that, it probably makes it easier. But that just stood out to me as like another another example of how like what he was struggling with could in fact have contributed to his success. But now that it's not there, how does it impact his life? Yeah, yeah.
0: So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear him talk about that more mm-hmm. now since he's re- When did he retire? 2013? Yeah, I think something around it's there. been that long? Yeah. I felt like that was two seconds ago. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, days fly by. So, yeah. OCD as is an issue, uh, or, you know, as a mental health topic, as a diagnosis, I think it's something we're going to get into now more from like the clinical side or for like, you know, Uh, for people to understand what that is um, a little bit more. Where do you want to start with that? I just have, you know, you've done a ton
1: of work with with OCD um, specifically. And so I I think it'd be really helpful. I've got just a couple of questions because I think uh, like for that come up a lot and you've sort of already alluded to it that OCD is sort of like one of those flippant comments that we always kind of make, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm so OCD because I had to turn the light off twice or, you know, whatever it is. And so, um I'm curious to kind of learn and, and to hear and just sort of ask of like, it's definitely it's overused, it's misused. So re- what is it, right? If you were if you were to sort of to for our listeners who sort of maybe like, well, maybe I do that sometimes. Am I just using it flippantly, or is mm-hmm. it something that I need to maybe get a little bit more like what What is it? What yeah. would be helpful for for listeners to know? No, it's
0: a great question. I mean, like I think so. First, maybe I'll touch on like just how a lot of when it comes to, like mental health topics, a lot of things are like on a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like. We, a lot of us, maybe share little elements 10% of that spectrum, 20%, 27%. Mm-hmm. And then, maybe diagnostically, like in terms of diagnosing someone with OCD or another mental health issue. Maybe they, you know, if you try to come up with a number, maybe they got to be at the 70% level, or if you're trying to look at it from a zero to a hundred spectrum. So often we're all, and this is where like, we've talked a lot about mental health, mental fitness, mental illness, and how things are on a continuum. We all struggle with different things in life. So it's rarely ever either, or right? Like either someone has OCD or they don't. Um, I mean, we have to diagnose that. So there's gotta be a line where we kind of go to, where we feel confident that they do have that for the purpose of thinking like, how do we work with this problem? But in reality, I think people are on a spectrum when it comes to these types of things. Hoarding is similar, right? Like some people may have minor hoarding tendencies; doesn't mean they're a hoarder, right? Some people may have sadness; doesn't mean they're depressed, right? So mm-hmm. I think if you look at zero to ten, I mean, a lot of people may have like may fall at like nine percent or nineteen percent or something like that when it comes to some minor tendencies, some compulsive ish behaviors, things mm-hmm. like that. They like the need for routine, or so. I think we all kind of benefit from some of those things. The difference is once it gets past a certain level, you know, 15% of that is not the same as 70 or wherever we think the line is with OCD. And so I think when people a person actually has uh, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, they've passed that line where it's not just like, you know, they prefer things a certain way or mm-hmm. um, they latch on to certain thoughts and can't get them out of their head from time to time. It's like, it's constantly like, all, you know, most of the day, every day, impacting them in some kind of way. And so I think OCD in general, like it's an anxious disorder. It's in the anxiety category. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different. Um, I think in terms of trying to differentiate between anxiety, like generalized anxiety versus OCD, I think the main thing I look at is, and I look for when I'm trying to diagnose, is the nature of their fears, right? I think with, with general anxiety, people are anxious and worried about certain things that may happen in their life. But they're very much rooted a little bit more in reality in terms of like the um, the specific subject of their fear, right? Not necessarily how much they fear. it. Right? I think a- anxiety usually mm-hmm. is going to a level that's like not necessary based right. on what's happening in real life, right? Yeah. I think that's why people struggle with it. But the topic, right, the subject of their fear is much more based in reality. For instance, if someone has a test the next day and they're super anxious about it and it's like debilitating – Okay, that's still a problem, right? They they have a they may have generalized anxiety disorder. However, the subject of their anxiety, a test, is a real thing that's going to happen the next day, right? With OCD, it's different. The subject are things that really aren't based in reality as much. They're they're much more out there, and they're much more things that like a typical person is not going to even concern themselves with, like good versus evil, right? Okay. Or um, trying to think of another thing, like uh, harm coming coming in the form of like. Um, you know, something random happening. Like if, if you step on a crack, right? Like your mother's going to get killed next, right? The the, later that day, like that stuff that like, it's not, it's not in the same category as taking a test the next day, right? That's actually going to happen. If you step on a crack, like, Most people are going to not form the connection between stepping on that crack and something actually happening to a family member. So the topic of the fear is much more irrational, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to label them as irrational, but that's just how the mind works sometimes. People with OCD, their fears are very much irrational in in terms of the direction they go in.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction because I think a lot of times OCD is... Not diagnosed, and anxiety is yeah. right, yep. and it's and it's you know we'll we'll get into because they I are anxious, be, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Prese- the 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 presentation is anxious, so correct? It's like, oh yeah, you're anxious, right? Yep. It's like well, let's actually get to the root of what what is causing that anxiety. And to your point, like that's why you got to really be getting into those thoughts because you're right. It's more like a rational, like you said. The example of like if I don't step on this crack, or if I step on this crack, someone, someone I love is going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a, that's a really helpful piece to kind of, um, to, to, to distinguish. Cause I think that those, like you said, it is an anxiety disorder under that category, but it's not, the treatment is different. So it is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. what causes it? That's
0: a great question. I don't think we really know yet. Um, I don't think there is like a simple answer. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it can be, um, you know, anywhere from like, Uh, a normal developmental phase that people go through, which we talked about. It can be hereditary, biological. Um, It can be something that you go through for a combination of those reasons. But then if certain things do or don't happen right on the heels of that age, when you start to develop it, it can make it stick and get worse versus just fade away. And and so I don't think we really know yet. I think it's a very complicated, um, you know, neurological kind of process uh, Mm -hmm. that some people are affected by and other people aren't. Um, And so I I don't think it's, just one thing. And I don't think we, we really know yet. I think that's where you know we've discussed this before, but with a lot of mental health situations, we just don't, we don't know yet. We don't have the, the research on how the brain works uh, mm-hmm. to really pin down exactly which sections are, in, uh, you know, really affect this or cause it. And even if we did, I don't think it's necessarily just, um, you know, just biological in that sense. I think a lot of it is environment and a yeah. lot of it is like, it can be modeled behavior. If you have a parent with OCD, you're much more likely to develop it. Um, it can be, you know, uh, we're, we're going to get into this, but it can be like the cycle of OCD in terms of uh, just negative behavioral reinforcement. I think mm-hmm. when people get into that OCD cycle, they start doing certain behaviors that reinforce the anxiety unknowingly. So in the moment, it makes them feel better, but they have unknowingly actually made things worse. So that's that's all about like, uh, you know, think about nature versus nurture. That's like a self-nurturing thing that makes the problem worse. Right. So that has nothing to do with the origins of it. But is it cert- it's certainly going to keep it around or make it worse. So I think it's a very complicated thing, as complicated as some of the mental health topics that we discuss get, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, you, that, that, that sort of perfectly ties in. I mean, you, t- you brought up like the OCD cycle, and it's certainly something that we talk about when we're addressing it. But for our listeners who have no idea what that is, could you just help explain what that what that means and sort of how to address that?
0: Yeah, so I think what happens is, um, you know, OCD is an anxious disorder, right? So right. it is in the realm of anxiety, and there's an anxious component to it. Now we've talked about how it's rooted in fears that are not based on reality, so it is a lot different, and the treatment process is different. But it, is, it does involve anxiety, and so when a person is anxious, their natural reaction is going to be, how do I get unanxious, right? How do right. I make the anxiety I go away? Yeah, how do I feel? Uh, how do I feel better? So the, the the cycle of OCD kind of starts with. There's some kind of core uh, slash specific fear, which which we'll get into a little bit more in, uh, later on in this episode, but there's a core fear. Um, typically with OCD, it, it divides into, this is painting with a broad brush, and there's a lot of like little mini versions of this, but they all tie into kind of two different types of core fears. There's fear of harm. Um, so harm avoidance is definitely one type, right? Harm coming to yourself, harm, harm coming to a loved one, typically, mm-hmm. that's one side. So fear of harm to self or others is one side of OCD. And then like incompleteness or something feeling just not quite right is the mm. other side of OCD, right? So typically it starts with a, with a core fear of something that ties into one of those two areas, right? Either like fear of harm coming to yourself or harm coming to someone else or the something's off or incomplete. That's where it starts. So when that sets in, they obviously feel anxious, Okay. And what tends to happen is they obsess, um, of thought, thought-based obsessions in terms of they latch on to that fear. They can't stop thinking about it. Their anxiety keeps going through the roof. Yep. Then they typically find some, some type of compulsive action or behavior that's designed to reduce the anxiety in the moment. And the, this is where it gets tricky because the tough part is it works. You mm-hmm. behave, you do something compulsively, it actually does reduce their anxiety short term. The problem is you just negatively reinforced the fear. And so what I mean by negative reinforcement, this gets kind of confused a lot. I think you, you and I know what it is. But right. I think when I was learning about it, it confused me too. When people hear negative reinforcement, they think reinforcing through negativity. Right. That's not actually what it means. Right. Negative reinforcement means you're you're reinforcing something by removing something else. Right. And so when they behave compulsively, it removes the anxiety from the situation. That's the negative reinforcement. Negative meaning removal right. of the anxiety. And that supports the whole cycle, Right. So it's like I behaved – I did this X, Y, Z compulsion. Let's say I, you know, uh, let's say I was anxious about stepping on the crack. So I compulsively stepped over the crack and that reduced my anxiety. But it actually just negatively reinforced the fear that drove it to begin with. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So then now – There's a real fear I need to be paying attention to continuously. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. now it just made that grow in strength, which means next time you're walking down the street – that crack's going to stick out even more, mm-hmm. right? And the anxiety is going to go even higher. Right. And you're going to feel even more of a need to behave compulsively, which you do, which yep. reduces the anxiety and the cycle just keeps going. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with it is that it it solves their problem short term by reducing the anxiety in the moment. But when you zoom out, it's actually just made the OCD like twice as bad. Yep. And when you, add compounding to this it's just over weeks and months and years mm-hmm. you can see how it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse and worse yeah because it solidifies
1: the fear as like a real fear yeah when you it's not right you give,
0: right exactly right, right. The, the reason
1: i have to do this is because it's real that if i do step on that crack someone in my life is going to die correct so you know feeding into that is only going to make the fear more and more exactly
0: prevalent. which is why like and, and we'll get into this in more detail but in terms of like treating it we like to use we like to use sports analogies and the one i use with a lot of the young guys i work with with ocd is learning how to treat um it's learning how to treat ocd like an opponent that you respect but that you're trying to compete against right we don't want to like because it is a part of you right so we don't want to hate ourselves that's not going to help but we do want to view it as something like all right i respect that it's obviously a powerful force but I want to compete against it, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you can name different athletes that kind of fit into that category, right? Someone, um, you know, on a, on a rival sports team, like for me, it would probably be like Derek Jeter, right? So it was someone like, mm-hmm. God, I always wanted like the Red Sox <laughs> to beat him, but like you couldn't help but respect the dude in terms mm-hmm. of like how he played the game and how good he was. So it's that kind of thing. So it's like it's not like you want to hate the person or hate the OCD. You want to view it as an opponent. You want to compete against it because the only way to get it better is, is to when when you have those uh, obsessive thoughts, is to you you feel that urge of OCD telling you to behave compulsively, and you have to learn to sit with that. Mm-hmm. And so, short term, the anxiety gets much much worse. But when you zoom out, your OCD has actually gotten better because instead of fanning the flames of that original fear. You've removed the oxygen from the and kind of snuffed that out. So yeah. that, it's not as strong the next time you go.
1: Yeah, well, you talked about the competitor. I think that's a really I use that all the time now. That was one that you gave me, which has really been really helpful. So I think you know treating treating it as like the competitor, I think, is really great. What are some other ways that people can sort of be thinking about how to combat it or work through it? I think you you brought up like the the importance of family being involved in that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so talk a little bit more about about that, like how do families help support? I think that's always a big component of that, especially for younger kids too. Talk a little bit more about how that can help to like people can be combating it a little bit more
0: yeah so the 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 reason that's important is because it's often ocd is often not just like the person dealing with it and then like you know random variables in their environment non-human it tends to be people in their life are knowingly or unknowingly contributing as part of the compulsive behavior and so this could be teachers it could be friends it's most of the time it's parents Mm -hmm. um so an example of this and it's very counterintuitive because an example of this is like let's say We'll take a school example. Let's say with ADHD, when a person has ADHD, they want to be accommodated by the school. They want to sit closer to the to the, screen, to the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to have maybe more time to do some of the assignments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the distractibility. Those are all examples of accommodations, reason, often called reasonable accommodations that schools provide. Yep. And for ADHD, it's very helpful. For OCD, it's the opposite, right? Because accommodation is a, is a type of compuls- compulsive behavior that is probably making the OCD worse. So for instance, let's say we talked about disrupting that cycle let's say a person is uh super afraid that uh if they turn in their assignment that they're going to get an f and that their life will be over and um you know everyone's going to think they're a bad person or something like that Mm -hmm. which is along the lines of like generalized anxiety but with ocd it goes much worse a lot of times it's it's uh, tied into like Fear of harm coming to yourself in the form of losing friends or having no uh, social capital whatsoever. That right. Kind of thing, yep. Right. So let's say that's one part of how their OCD kind of manifests itself. If you give them extra time, right, to do the assignment, <laughs> that's a com- that's compulsively right. providing extra time, which is going to reduce their anxiety in the moment, but make the OCD worse. And mm-hmm. this is where it's like. Parents do this all the time. They unknowingly provide accommodation. I've, I actually have four examples of like the the the, t- the ways that that parents or families and fr- family and friends tend to provide a, a what's called accommodation. Uh, one is performing a specific routine demanded by the person with OCD. So this could be like let's say a young you know young guy I work with has uh you know one of his compulsions is with food. So like he is. Afraid that if uh, the fear is that like the obsessive fear is if my food's touch that they're going to get contaminated or I might choke or something like that, mm-hmm. right? The um, compulsive behavior is my foods can't touch, and they'll tell their parent, "Do not let those foods touch," right? And mm-hmm. their parents like, "Okay, right." It, it's counterintuitive as a parent. You're like, "My son's struggling. I'm going to help them. Yeah. I don't want to be supportive. I want to be accommodating." That's what a parent always wants to do, right? But with OCD, it's completely counterintuitive, and you want to actually do the opposite because if you if you compulsively separate their food out for them you are now jumping into the ocd cycle and making it worse right unknowingly so that's an example of like performing a specific routine demanded by the person with ocd another form of accommodation is changing uh, your behavior to accommodate the person with ocd's ritual hmm. so let's say uh you have to leave you know for soccer practice by 5 p.m and um you know the person with ocd has a 10 minute ritual they do and they didn't start till 455 you're now waiting and you're saying okay I'll wait until five after, so you can complete that. That's you changing right. what needs to happen to fit the person's ritual. Uh, third one is offering excessive reassurance to the person with OCD. This is a big one. That's probably the most common one with parents, mm-hmm. where it's when they're when a person has OCD and and there is that anxious component, they'll often go to the parent and seek reassurance compulsively. Mm-hmm. So that's the compulsion is like they go to mom or dad and they say. Hey, I'm afraid that uh, you know if I step on a crack, that you're going to get hurt. Is that going to happen? And the parents be like, No, 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 it's okay. Like it's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. And they just con- that is a normal parent thing to do mm-hmm. when you love your kid, but it makes the OCD worse. And so in those situations, what I tell parents is, and this gets repetitive, and it's I wish there was a better solution, but they almost have to. You don't want to say nothing, but you just you don't want to accommodate or provide reassurance either, because you have to force the person to not know. The person with OCD, in order to get better, they have to sit with that fear mm-hmm. but not have an answer from a parent. So you have to say something like, I can't I can't tell you what's gonna happen, but I, I trust that you're gonna be strong enough to be able to sit with this and deal with it. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Because it right. forces the person to it forces them to deal with the fear and resist the urge to compulsively ask for reassurance. But it also is still the parent sort of showing care mm-hmm. and not just like you know throwing them in the pool. Hey, learn how to swim. You know <laughs> turn what I mean? around and walk away. Yeah. yeah. So it's a good balance because it do, they don't feel like they have to just like you know not show love to their kid. They just have to show love in the right way. Mm-hmm. So that's the third one. The fourth one is helping with avoidance. So again, what's the school example? This would be like uh, seeking exemptions or extensions from from work or school or teachers or things like that, because compulsive behaviors don't there's. Two types of behaviors, as you know, John, preaching in the choir here. Mm -hmm. There's active and there's passive, right? Right. So there's, you know, actions that we're taking, but sometimes behavior is passive in the form of avoidance. Mm -hmm. And compulsive behaviors can be like that, too, where you're just compulsively avoiding things, not necessarily doing anything. And if you, you know, if a parent gets accommodations, like if a kid's avoiding, compulsively avoiding schoolwork due to OCD, and you get unlimited time to turn that, you're not actually helping them, right? Right. So that's kind of where family and parents kind of factor in.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful because I think that's one of the the, the the few people that I've worked with OCD, that's always a big bulk of the work because most families like you said, a lot of the, a lot of the core strategies that you want to sort of like empower families to do are all extremely counterintuitive, mm-hmm. right? Your kid is like debilitated because yeah. their food is touching, right? You're like, okay, I got you. Like, I'll, I'll separate the foods because you want them to feel comforted. Yeah. And it's really, really hard as a parent. And I've been, you. I know, again, preaching the choir too, you've sat in the room where parents are like, they're having an enormously difficult time mm-hmm. trying to change and shift the way that they do things. And it's really it can be really, really hard to do, um, especially because like you said, the anxieties usually go up yep. when you're sort of not allowing that cycle to complete. And having parents like you have to kind of coach the parents of like you also have to sit with like learn to sit with that too because your kid is going to be in a really, really hard space and here's you know to go from there. And so, um, and I think you know, we, we, we talk about parents a lot because they're the ones that probably are seeing their, their, their kids the most. But like you said, it's really helpful for other people in their, those people's lives to have an understanding of how to, how to sever that cycle from happening or to, to sort of be contributing to it. So um, that's really helpful. One thing I wanted to sort of rewind back that you talked a little bit about was like hoarding. And I think it's mm-hmm. often like sort of like just Thrown into the mix with everything, can yeah. you h- help me help help our listeners understand like the the discrepancies or the differentiations between the between the two?
0: Yeah, so for a long time, uh, OCD and hoarding were kind of combined. Like right. hoarding was viewed as like a uh, you know a subset of OCD mm-hmm. um, or like a specifier, right? If you get clinical jargony terms, right? Sometimes with with diagnoses, you know, we have to specify if something was present if it wasn't. So for a long time, hoarding was just kind of thrown in. Because it was the the compulsive saving of things was viewed as a very obsessive compulsive kind of act, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're obsessing over not wanting to give something away. You compulsively save it. It's almost like a form of compulsive avoidance, right? You're avoiding letting go. Letting go of something, right? So you you can see how – and sometimes it is just a part of OCD, um, so it, it's been separated the last DSM when the DSM five came out, the diagnostic, uh statistical manual, uh, which yep. is what we use to diagnose when that came out. They actually, it was the first time I they separated it. it. Yeah. Yep. So they separate OCD out. Now it can still be a specifier with, with regard to OCD. Like for instance, if someone has OCD and they do save things, but they only do it due to their, you know, um, you know, obsessive fear of something bad happening to themselves or something like that, then it might just be part of OCD. But a lot of times it's not. And the reason for that is I think like 80% of people with hoarding also has have a compulsive uh, acquiring habit, not hundred percent, but 80%, which is a lot. And when you, this is what separates it from OCD is that OCD, there is no pleasure component to OCD. It's, mm-hmm. it's horrible. It's debilitating. It's anxiety, 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 and then at best you're using compulsive behaviors to reduce your anxiety to something manageable, but it's never, there's never a pleasure component. Mm-hmm. Hoarding has a pleasure component, specifically with the 80% that compulsively acquire because it's like compulsive shopping. When they get into that cycle of compulsive acquiring, mm-hmm. whether it's acquiring free things or purchasing things online, especially with internet shopping, it's gotten a lot worse with hoarding across the across the globe, really. Um, but there's a pleasure component. So it's almost like a drug, right? They, they acquire something. Um, there's a flood of dopamine, dopamine. to the brain when mm-hmm. they acquire that thing. Uh, that lasts not that long and then they feel ashamed of themselves and how they feel the shame is to go out and buy another thing it's a very addictive cycle that's much different than OCD but with OCD there isn't never that dopamine release uh, Mm -hmm. at all it's just how do I reduce my anxious harm as much as possible and prevent these horrible things from seemingly happening so yeah that's where that comes from is that they I actually did a lot of work I used to I actually fell into OCD because I used to do work with hoarding for a long time I did work for like Probably three to five years working with hoarders, um, people with hoarding issues in their homes and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, worked on a hoarding research team for for a year at when I was at B U in, in grad school. a very fascinating topic, but you see the the kind of nuances between O C D and hoarding once you get in there a little bit more. Yeah, it's a great distinction that they finally
1: made because the treatments are different. So yeah. it's it's really helpful to have like two different paths rather than trying to treat something that's not gonna be yep. not gonna be effective. Yeah. So my last question is really, you know, where where might people be able to go for like additional resources or anything else that might be kind of helpful for them to
0: to know. It's so the um, it's interesting. For OCD and for hoarding, a great website is, I believe it's um, I-O-C-D-F. So it's like the In- International OCD Foundation, mm-hmm. I-O-C-D-F, either .org. I would say .org. It might be .com. So mm-hmm. forgive me if I don't have the exact one. It's a great place to go for resources on OCD and, and hoarding. I think it has like educational tips for parents, people dealing with it, how to uh, see if this is actually a problem that's happening, that kind of thing. definitely go to that um i would say also if someone's struggling with ocd that that it is manageable i've actually found that it's i've found more success helping people reduce their ocd than i have um with generalized anxiety i Mm -hmm. think it's um something about the process and once you once you face some of these things in this very strategic way it helps a person reduce those um it's the opposite of the cycle we discussed the cycle we discussed is like you're giving credit to the fears but the treatment approach actually removes that credit and you see the anxiety just plummet and i've had mm-hmm. a lot of success with people that way so i think if if a person's dealing with it those web that website is helpful but get connected to someone who this is where like the therapist you work with has to be very specific you can't just work with a general practitioner if you work with a general therapist who is just a caring person who can listen like that's not enough they have to have mm-hmm. experience specifically working with ocd because this is a very specific very in-depth tailored treatment approach um which a combination of Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a little bit of it, I wouldn't even say the majority of it. The majority of it is what's called uh, ERP, which is exposure and response prevention training, yeah. Yeah. and that's where, in th- in um, in sessions, what we'll do is you start to get a little jargony here. The, the jargony term for it is you create a topography, and basically another word for a map. But basically, you're mapping out the different core fears that a person has, the specific fear that ties into it, and then how, how what that ranks for them subjectively, like one to ten. Right, so a core fear would be like, let's say a person says, um, you know, this is. I'll give you a good example. Like, let's, let's say I usually start with their compulsive behaviors because it makes it easier to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, let's say their compulsive behavior is like they separate food. Okay, the specific fear and the core fear is not always what you think it might be, and this is why it's very important to get into that. So, you you have the compulsive behavior of I separate my food, and then you say sort of, all right, what are you afraid is going to happen there, right? And they might say. Um, typically, it's like, well, if I don't separate my food, um, you know, the foods will touch and they'll contaminate and something will happen to me. So, like, that's the core fear is harm to self. Mm-hmm. Uh, the specific fear is contamination. Right. A lot of times, it could be something different. It's like, well, if my foods touch, I might choke on it. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, that's core fear, still harm to self, but specific fear is choking, not contamination. Right. So right. you have to like kind of delineate those out, and then they might they might um, rank that as like a four out of ten. 10 being the worst. And then you go through and you do some other ones and they might say like, well, I, you know, have to leave my closet doors um, closed because I'm afraid something's going to come out um, when I turn off lights to go to bed. And You might say, okay, like, so you're afraid something's going to come out and they're going to attack you. And they might like, no, I'm afraid they're going to come out and go attack my mother. Mm-hmm. Right. So that might be like fear of harm to others. Yep. Spe- that's the core fear. Specific fear is, you know, they're going to come attack something's my mom. Coming right? Up, right. And yeah. that might be a nine. Right. And so you see how we get these nines and fours and sevens and twos. And we you divide them up by core fears. So you kind of group things and it's easier to see if you have them grouped by like core fears. So you also get a feeling for like which core fears are the worst for them. So you Mm -hmm. really understand how it impacts their life. And you create what's called a hierarchy. So you order them from easiest to hardest. And so the ones and twos, we're going to start with those. Mm -hmm. And the nines and tens, those, those go at the end because those are the hardest for them to let go of. And if you go to the nines too quick, it's like, you know how we've talked about the um, zone of proximal development a lot. Where when you're tw- when you're trying to grow as a person or learn something, if you're 20% out of your comfort zone, that's the best because you're pushing yourself to grow, but not too much to the point where you're just going to mm-hmm. fall on your face yep. and not too little to the point where you're not going to make any progress. This is like that, right? If you, with a person's exposure hierarchy, if they have one through nine, run through tens, you start with 10, you're just asking too much of them, yeah. right? You start with the ones, and they master the ones through exposure therapy. So you're setting up exposures, uh, in- in- intentionally setting them up. It's not impulsive. You plan these things out. Where they they are forced to set up the scenario that they typically compulsively do things to or avoid, and you have them actually sit with that with that discomfort, that anxiety, and they're able to sit. Um, if they can't do it for entire in its entirety, like let's say it would typically take fifteen minutes, if so they can't do the full fifteen minutes, you start with a minute, and you start with five minutes, right? You're gradually exposing them. They master that, then you move on to the twos and the threes and the fours, and you eventually through treatment you go all the way down to the nines and the tens. The nines and the tens are typically pretty tough. A lot of times we do what's called like a hierarchy within a hierarchy. So if a 10 is like, let's say a person doesn't can't take their chain off because uh, the chain is, they're superstitious about it and if they don't have it on, something's going to happen to them, right? Mm-hmm. Then it might be like, well, at first you're going to take your chain off but hold it in your hand, right? Mm-hmm. Then it might be you take your chain off inside your house because that's easier for you than having your chain off when you're outside the house, right? right. So that's like all within that one item of chain compulsively needing to be worn But you have like 10 or more. Sometimes you have like 15 steps within a thing. Right. And it really does work. You get people to gradually expose themselves to this. They start to realize like, oh my God, like my anxiety is actually reducing Mm -hmm. after the first couple weeks, even though in the moment it's much worse and Mm -hmm. they have to sit with that. Right. Outside the moment gets better. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So that's basically the, the, the course of treatment. You kind of create that hierarchy and you systematically kind of work your way through. Occasionally people have... Uh, obsessions that don't tie into a compulsion. And so I usually leave those to the end. I'll, 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 tackle the compulsions that tie into obsessions first, mm-hmm. or sometimes compulsions don't have an obsession. They're just a compulsion. I'll, I'll use mostly, um, exposure and response prevention training to target those. Yep. And then if there's some obsessions left over that are, are really not tied into a compulsive behavior, that's when CBT can kind of come into play. You right. do some cognitive behavioral therapy, um, to kind of help finish off those things. And by that time, because they've crushed out the hierarchy, they're mm-hmm. feeling so much less anxious. They're in a much better place to do CBT, and this is why CBT alone doesn't really work for for OCD. Because when you're challenging people's automatic thoughts, and their automatic thoughts are not based in reality, they're based in stuff like you know, if I step on a crack, someone's going to die. You can see how like they'll they often know it's not logical. Like, of course,
1: this isn't. Of course, I know that's not real. Correct.
0: Correct. Yep. And that's why it's especially good for parents and family to know that like we don't want to do what's called logicking away their problems, right? If you try to you know, confront someone with OCD and say like, Hey, obviously if you step on a crack, I'm going to be fine. It's not going to work and it's going to make them feel stupid about themselves Um, Mm -hmm. because deep down they know these things aren't logical. They just can't stop it. So, um, that's how we usually approach the treatment. It it does work really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, most of the people, especially if you you target it early on in your life, um, you can get these problems to go away pretty quickly. So I would encourage anyone listening just to get, um, you know, get connected with someone when it comes to that kind of stuff. I think you bring up a really great point of like a
1: general practic- practitioner might not be the best fit. You re- if There are certain diagnostic pieces that we come across within our work that really need very individualized specializations. Mm-hmm. And OCD is definitely one of those. Someone who has a very clear understanding of the process because you can go into it and it's just sort of like traditional talk therapy probably isn't going to be very effective for that person. And really needing someone who knows how to break it down like mm-hmm. you have done today like just being able to this is this is the treatment plan of how we're going to be going ab- about this you really need to have someone that's really specialized in the work
0: yeah and, and organized too because it does yeah. it does involve so usually like a spreadsheet and you know yeah. i've worked with someone who has like over 80 of 80 lines on a spreadsheet of like <laughs> the different like variations yeah. of their compulsive behavior so it gets um it gets kind of tricky with some of that stuff and if you're not tracking all that stuff very clearly you're probably not doing what you need to do to help the person so mm-hmm. um i think on that iocdf website you can you can find what's called a uh, cy dashboard box uh B O C S. that's like the the kind of instrument we use to sort of try to track initially diff- people's different obsessions and yeah, their compulsions, compulsions. Yeah. yeah and so it kind of lists like you check off like current obsession or past obsession then a current con- uh compulsion or past compulsion um some of the different categories are like c- contamination obsessions there's aggressive obsessions there's sexual obsessions there's uh superstitious obsessions um religious, uh and then sometimes I see a lot of like the need to know or remember, um, or the fear of saying certain things or fear of embarrassment. Yeah. That tends to be a big one. Um most of the compulsions tie into the same categories of obsessions, although there's like some differences when it comes to that. Um so when it comes to compulsions, you see a lot of like checking compulsions, like checking and rechecking things. Yeah. That could be schoolwork, that could be things around the house, household items. Um, repeating rituals, counting rituals, ordering or or arranging is a big one. I think that's the one that probably tends to get used way too much with people throwing around the term OCD. Yeah. Yeah, Like I like my things to be in a straight line. They have to be this way. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, all right. A lot of people like ordering. I like my house to to be clean. Yeah. I don't have OCD. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Just because you like your house clean or like, you know, your shirt's stacked and it doesn't mean you have OCD. Right. Um, there's superstitious behaviors. Um, Rituals involving other people which we've talked about mm-hmm. and there's also mental rituals. Sometimes the compulsion is not an actual act It's a mental compulsion that you go through um, Those are harder to deal with a little mm-hmm. bit But then there's also like ritualized eating behaviors the need to touch tap or rub things uh, need to do certain things until they feel just right quote-unquote um, and then also sometimes you see things like um hair pulling or skin picking. So hair pulling is called trictillomania. Skin uh, picking is called excoriation, I think. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you see that kind of stuff overlap because we talked about how like the sensory overlap stuff tends to, you tend to see that with people with OCD. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage people to, you know, go check this stuff out on their website because it is helpful to kind of see the different categories and it does make more sense for people when you see how many different things there are. Mm -hmm. Um, Because just because someone has some obsessive thoughts or some minor compulsive behaviors doesn't mean they have yep ocd usually it's like what we look for is is it taking up an hour or more of your day when it comes to the time spent with these obsessions or the time behaving certain things uh, doing certain things in a compulsive manner um if that's the case then usually ocd is a problem right um so that is it for this episode um we want to make sure we ask people to continue to subscribe on YouTube. We did get to 100. I don't know where we're at now. Have you checked? I think we're at like 110 or something I like thought, that. Yeah, last I saw it was 107, but maybe okay, it okay. yeah. went up a little bit. Um, yeah. So we're happy about that, but obviously we want people to continue to, to subscribe on YouTube if possible. Uh, all the helpful links that we talked about today will be in the show notes and on our website at grimdrive.com. I want to thank everyone who's listening for this discussion about David Beckham and OCD. And we'll be back next week. Let's talk about Tiger Woods. Yeah.